This morning's text is taken from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. So please join me and follow along. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it as boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Our Father, you know what struggles it took to put this sermon together. You know the thickness of the forests that we walked through together. You know the grace that you provided at every turn. You know it all, Lord. And now I simply pray that you would accomplish the purposes for which you took me on that journey because it wasn't just for me, but it was for your people and the glory of your name. And so I entrust myself to you now, Father, and I put my hope in you and in you alone. I pray that you would make me faithful to your word and where I err, I pray that faithful saints would point it out and I pray that your truth would shine above my error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight now, our Lord, our God, our victorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In my view, Paul wrote Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, at least in part, to open our eyes to the glory and the mystery and the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. The Bible tells us in other places that Paul was granted great visions of the Lord, and I do believe that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is in part a glimpse into what God showed him. And then Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, 9 is written, at least in part, to inspire and to help us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's It's written to help us walk in a manner worthy of what Paul taught us in the first three chapters of the book. And now, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 was written, I believe, to wake us up to the fact that if we're to live that kind of life, we must be made strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We must put on the armor of God and take up the sword of the Spirit, and we must fight to win this victory. This life that we live in Christ is free, but it does not come cheap. We have to put on the armor of God and put forth effort in the Lord and in the strength of His might, we must fight. And not only does Paul want us to be awake to the fact that living in this manner is war, but I think he wants us to be awake to the nature of that war. He wants us to be aware that we're not fighting an enemy that's distant from us, but one that is up close and personal. 
Which is why I believe in part that he used the word wrestle in verse 12 of chapter 6. So if you look there, he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. That word wrestle means to engage in intense struggle involving physical or non-physical force against strong opposition. In Paul's world, it was most often used to uh, to refer to a contest between two athletes where the object was for the one to throw the other down and then one would win by pinning his enemy's neck to the ground with his hands. So in our culture, how does a wrestler win a match? He pins the shoulders to the ground, right? And if both shoulders are pinned to the ground for three seconds, he wins. But in Paul's culture, it was different. The way that the wrestler won was to get his opponent on the ground and pin his neck to the ground with his hands. And I think Paul has this image in mind when he uses the word wrestle. And I think he's trying to teach us in this imagery something about the nature of the battle that we are facing. I think he's saying, Christian, you are not fighting an enemy which is distant from you. It's not like we're we're camped off of the shore of our enemy on a nice safe battleship lobbing missiles into his territory. It's not like we're flying at 30,000 feet and just dropping bombs into the heart of his kingdom. No, this is an up-close and personal battle. We are in a face-to-face, hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword, body-to-body, up-close, personal, difficult, bloody, costly war here. So be awake, Christian. I think that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to get our attention. Be awake. Not just to the fact that you're in a war, but to the fact that you're in a certain kind of war. Up close, personal, wrestling, dangerous. And so be strong in the Lord. And be strong in the power of His might because without the Lord, you have no hope of victory, right? As I said last week, without the Lord, you have no hope of victory. But with the Lord, your enemy has no hope of victory. So be made strong in the Lord. And be made strong in the power of His might. Our God and Father in Jesus Christ has the power to pin our enemy down by His neck with just His little tiny pinky finger. God could pin Satan down in all of his forces with his pinky and do 10 million other things at the same time. He's that powerful. Our enemy is that weak in comparison to him. So be made strong in your God and the victory will be yours. Eventually, you will find yourself in a position where your hands in Christ are on the neck of your enemy. I believe... Now that's what Paul is up to in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. He's trying to teach us how to live in victory to the glory of the name of Jesus. This week, and perhaps the next two weeks, I want to spend some time talking about our enemy because Paul names him and his forces in verses 11 through 12. And I do think that in the end it will be good for us to understand him and his tactics as well as we can. As I said a few weeks ago, we're, we're like signed up for a boot camp here. And we're learning how to be warriors in the kingdom of God. And one thing we've got to do is understand our enemy well. So in the end, this will be good for us. And I, I put it that way, I use those words in the end because I have to confess that as I sat down to begin my studies earlier this week, I was very reluctant to go into this subject in detail. I was clear that the Lord was calling me to study our enemy in some detail and I didn't want to do it. 
And the reason I didn't want to do it is because, honestly, I'm repulsed by Satan. And I didn't want to spend hours, and as it turned out, days of my life, meditating on him and his history and his future and, and all of that. When I think about things like war and genocide and abortion and suicide and the oppression of whole peoples and the demeaning of women and children around the world, when I think about the saints I've seen in the past who have been beat down by this foe of ours, when I think about how he has wreaked havoc in my own life at times and has taken me captive to do his will, when I think about all he is and all the evil he does, the last thing I want to do is meditate about Him. And so there I sat before the Lord saying, I know you're calling me to do this, but to be honest with you, Father, I don't want to do it. But by His grace, I humbled myself and I followed the Father in the way that He was leading me. And as I did, He helped me see anew that warriors who fail to understand their enemies well rarely win battles. Right? Dave Fergus, I don't know where you are. There you are. This is a military man. He'll testify that what I'm saying is true. Every once in a while, a, a person who doesn't know their enemy well wins. But most of the time, someone who doesn't understand the enemy loses. And so we must take the time, whether we like it or not, to understand him. Thoroughgoing insight does not guarantee victory, but it is an essential component of victory, especially when your enemy is so much stronger than you are. And in this case, that's true. So in order to display God's power through our weakness, our Father has done this. He has essentially given us our enemy's playbook. So it's like, you, you guys know I love football a lot. So it's like we're facing a football team that's a lot better than us. But the secret weapon we have is someone gave us the playbook. And we know what they're going to do. And we know when they're going to do it. And we know how they're going to do it. We know their tactics. We know their strategies. We know how they plan to exploit our weaknesses. And so we can use all of that to our advantage to gain the upper hand and to give us the victory. Our Father has revealed to us our enemy's history and his identity and purposes and weaknesses and destiny. He has given us clear and effective countermeasures against Him that when used properly, always guarantee victory. Now you may think that that is an overstatement, but I don't think it is. I would submit to you that the only reason Christians ever lose battles is not because the plan of God for victory is flawed, but because we fail to follow that plan of victory, right? So you only have two choices in terms of explaining why Christians still fall and fail and lose battles, one choice is to say that God's plan for victory doesn't work. And I don't think that's a good choice. Or the other is to say that somehow, some way, we don't quite follow it and we fail. And obviously, it's the second part. So, our Father would have us listen well to His wisdom, learn well from His Word, and learn how to fight in Christ so that eventually, with Christ, our hands will be on the neck of our enemies. I learned after two or three days of meditating on this stuff with my father this week that in the end, it turns out that when a person meditates on the biblical texts that have to do with our enemy, that what that really is about is not the enemy, but it is about the purposes and the power and the plans of God for victory for his people. So I say again to you that this study about our enemy will be long and longer than I thought it was going to be. But in the end, I think that it will be good. So I want to urge you to pay careful attention, take good notes, and to study these things well on your own as well. 
I want to begin by asking a very simple question. Just go to the go to the bottom of the barrel here and ask the question, what or who is our enemy? Who is it that we're actually fighting against? Paul doesn't provide an exhaustive answer to this question here in this text, but I do believe he provides an adequate answer, and I've divided that answer into three parts. We'll deal with two this week and deal with one next week, Lord willing. So first of all, he tells us who our enemy is not. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, by which I think it's pretty obvious that Paul means our enemy is not a person or a group of persons, or perhaps he even means even our own flesh. Now, this really calls for wisdom, I think, because if you think about it with me, all of our spiritual battles, at least at some level, involve flesh and blood, don't they? Every spiritual battle that you probably fought in your life at least at some level, in some way, shape, or form, involved other people, or at least involved your own flesh and blood. For example, we Christians wrestle with those who control oppressive world systems. We wrestle with those who engage and promote lascivious lifestyles of behavior in the broader culture. We wrestle with those who work to oppose the church at macro and micro levels. We wrestle with those who inflict persecution of various kinds on believers. We wrestle with those who teach false doctrines and who would try to deceive us by teaching those doctrines. We wrestle with those who tempt us and seek to lure us into things that God has strictly forbidden. We wrestle with those inside the church who give themselves to destructive behaviors like gossip and self-centeredness and greed and self-promotion and things like that. And last of all, we wrestle with this flesh and blood, right? Every day when I wake up, I look my worst enemy in the face, and that's when I look in the mirror to get myself ready. I'm always undermining what God is trying to do in my life, and so I I am wrestling with flesh and blood. How can Paul say we do not wrestle with flesh and blood? It can be very difficult to see and believe, especially in the heat of battle, that our ultimate enemy is not our flesh and blood, but it is something else. It is someone else. In fact, without the supernatural help of our Father, I don't think that we will ever see this and understand it and walk in the light of that truth. And I think making the matter more complicated, there are times when we're wrestling with people where we have to, to oppose them, where we have to even rebuke them. And there are times when we're wrestling with our own flesh where we have to oppose ourselves and where we have to rebuke ourselves. A brother and I were talking this week about Matthew 5, where Jesus told men who were struggling with lust to cut their own hands off and gouge their own eyes out, if that's what it took. And I said that I don't think Jesus is being literal. I don't think He's telling every man in this room, if you struggle with lust, gouge your eyes out, cut your hands off. He can't mean that, because if He meant that, you'd also have to remove your brain from your head, since your brain is the main thing with which you lust. So He can't mean that. But I do think he means you should take drastic action against yourself when you're struggling with lust. So here we are, having at times to fight against flesh and blood, and what are we to do? Well, I think what Paul is trying to do here is not say that we don't struggle with these things, but he's trying to help us be alert to the fact that those aren't the ultimate things that we struggle with. He's trying to give us eyes to see that there are forces above and beyond what we see physically that are at work here. And that's where the real war is. That's where the battle needs to be fought. That's why we need not self-help programs, but the armor of God. 
You can't fight Satan with a 12-step program. You just can't. You need the armor of God. And that's what Paul is trying to open our eyes up to here, I think. John Calvin said this in his commentary on Ephesians 6, and I put this up here for you to read along. Let us remember this when the injurious treatment of others provokes us to revenge. Our natural disposition would lead us to direct all of our exertions against the men themselves. But this foolish desire will be restrained by the consideration that the men who annoy us are nothing more than darts thrown by the hand of Satan. While we are employed in destroying those darts, we lay ourselves open to be wounded on all sides. To wrestle with flesh and blood will not only be useless, but highly pernicious. We must go straight to the enemy who attacks and wounds us from his concealment, who slays us before he appears. And this leads me to Paul's second answer to my question, who is our enemy? And this is his main answer, the devil. I get this answer from the end of verse 11. If you look there, Paul said, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's precisely the point at which I struggle with the Lord this week. It's because when I saw that word and it landed on me, what Paul was trying to open our eyes to here, I really felt the Lord leading me to look up every single occurrence of the word devil in the Bible, the word Satan in the Bible, the other names that are used for the Bible. I felt Him urging me to do it thoroughly. Someone gave me a word after church last week and said that they were praying for me and just were praying that I would be thorough with the series, that I would not be too quick to rush through it, but just take my time and do the job well. And that word really landed on me. So there I'm now sitting at my study praying with the Lord and I... I I sense him telling me to go in and think deep, and so I did. I looked up every single occurrence of those words. I read them in context. I prayed about them. I categorized them. It took days. It took almost three days for me to go through all of that. And so this sermon and the next two come out of those three days of walking with the Lord into forests that I did not want to walk into. Here's part of what I learned. Let's talk about the names of our enemy for a little bit. The name devil arrives or derives from the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderous or one who slanders. And very similarly, the name Satan derives from the Hebrew word shatan, which means adversary or accuser. So so get this straight in your mind. Think Old Testament. The, the main word used there is Satan because that's a Hebrew word. means accuser. And in the New Testament, think the Greek word uh, devil or diabolos, which means slanderer. So basically the same thing. Accuser or slanderer. Those are the meanings of the words devil and Satan. Neither of these words are used in the Bible to refer exclusively to Satan. Sometimes they are used to refer to other people who are slanderous or who are bringing accusations of one kind or another. But our enemy, the devil, is so given to this slanderous kind of behavior that he came to be known by that name. So it's kind of like this. Imagine that you had a friend who was constantly going around backbiting other people and and slandering other people and talking behind their backs. So much so that when you see the person approaching, you turn to a friend and say, hey, here comes the slanderer, here comes the backbiter, here comes the accuser. That's what happened with Satan. He was so given to these kinds of behaviors that his name became that, accuser, uh, usurper, uh, slanderer. 
And so it's not so much that these are proper names given to him, they are labels given to him to describe the kind of activity that he is interested in and given to. Now besides these two main names, there are several other lesser names and one phrase that is used to refer to him. Serpent, as you know, is used only ten times in the Bible. The phrase the evil one is used ten times. The prince of the power of the air is used once in Ephesians 2.2. And then there is the proper name Beelzebul, which is used in three of the Gospels only seven times. That name, uh, you may or may not know, refers to a false god that was worshipped by the Philistines. And the name literally means the Lord of dung or the Lord of filth, by which the Philistines meant that this god in their minds somehow delivered them from the detrimental effects of those things. Some of your translations might render this word Beelzebub at the end rather than Beelzebul. And that would then mean Lord of the Flies and probably mean that the Philistines looked to this so-called God to deliver them from the seasonal flies that would overwhelm the area of the world in which they live. But regardless of how that name is translated and understood, most scholars think that the reason the Jews used it to refer to Satan was to cast scorn on the Philistines. It's kind of like, uh, have you heard about the Mormon church, how they have this angel that they call Moroni? i gotta, I got to admit that I think it's a little funny that their main angel is basically named Moron. That's kind of funny to me. But it would be like if we took their God, their God, their angel Moroni, and used that word to refer to Satan as a way to castigate the Mormons and say the one you follow is in fact Satan. That's what the Jews were doing to the Philistines by calling Satan Beelzebul. They were taking their God and saying, no, your God is in fact a devil. So that's what that name is about. It's, it's rarely used in the Bible. It's really probably not a name we need to think a lot about. But I did want to mention it just for the sake of our knowledge. Finally, there's one more name that I want to mention. It's not really a name though. It doesn't derive from Hebrew or Greek, but but rather from the Latin Vulgate translation that the early church father Jerome translated, and that name is Lucifer. The word Lucifer simply means light-bringing, and Jerome used that word to translate a Hebrew word in Isaiah 14.12, which says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. So Jerome looked at that word daystar in Hebrew and chose the word Lucifer in Latin to translate it. And so it's really not a proper name, and I would not suggest using this name for Satan because the Bible really doesn't use it in that way at all. In fact, it's not, it doesn't derive at all from the original languages, so I would probably just leave that word go and really more refer to him as Satan or the devil. That's the way the Bible would talk about him, accuser or slanderer. Now that we know a little bit more about the names by which our enemy is called, I want to spend a little bit of time now talking about what happened to him. And I want to continue this conversation next week as well. I want to talk with you about how he came to be the way that he is. And this is not an easy subject to address because the only um, texts in the Bible that really deal with this are kind of obscure. And in fact, not all scholars even agree that they refer to Satan. And so we have to be careful here and walk lightly here exegete text carefully, and hopefully in the midst of that, the Lord will give us some insight. The main texts that I'm talking about are Isaiah 14, 3 through 27, and Ezekiel 28. We're going to skip over the Isaiah 14 one today because I, I do think that it refers to Satan, but the reason that I do is kind of complicated, and I don't want to take the time to lay that out before you right now. So will you please turn with me to Ezekiel 28? 
And I want to read this text and try to meditate with you just for a few moments on what happened to our enemy and how he came to be the way that he is. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 28.12, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the mountain, on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Let me take a couple of minutes and tell you why I think that this refers to Satan and not to the earthly king of Tyre as it says there in verse 12. First of all, the languages, the language of verses 12 and 13 just cannot be describing an earthly king, and especially that earthly king, because if nothing else, he was not in the Garden of Eden. It says there, you were in the Garden of Eden. And the king of Tyre, living in the time of Ezekiel, was not in the Garden. So how, somehow or other, the prophets got to be talking about someone else, and we know from the rest of Scripture that Satan was in the garden. And so that kind of language would make perfect sense if it was talking about him. Second reason, and this is my, my main reason by far. Look at verse 14 there, where we find those unique words, you were an anointed guardian cherub, or some of your translations might say you were an anointed covering cherub. The word for guardian or covering is ambiguous, and that's why different translations translate it differently, because we're not actually really sure what the Hebrew word means. But the words for anointed and the word for cherub are very clear. We know exactly what they mean. And the combination of those two words is unique. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see the word anointed and the word cherub being put together. So let's talk for a second about the word cherub. That word is used 94 times in the Bible, and it refers to angels. It always refers to angels. There's never a time in all the Bible where that word refers to a human being or to something other than a human being or an angel. It always refers to angels. 68 times 
it is referring to the temple. And you probably remember from reading the Bible how cherubs were either fashioned over the Ark of the Covenant, or they were carved into wood, or they were woven into the fabric of curtains and things like that. Sixty-eight times in the Bible, the, 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 the Bible uses the word cherub or cherubim, which is the plural, uh, in that way. Another 26 times, the Bible uses this word cherub to refer to actual living angels. And 25 of those times appear in the book of Ezekiel. So think about this with me. You start at reading Ezekiel in chapter 1. And you read and you read and you read. And by the time you get to chapter 28, you have already seen 23 times where the word cherub refers to actual living angels. That means that when you get to chapter 28, you're sure that when Ezekiel uses the word cherub, he doesn't mean a human being. He never means a human being. He cannot be meaning a human being here. He is talking about an angel. And that is probably the primary reason why I'm convinced that he's not talking about the physical king of Tyre, but he's using that as a metaphor for some angel. Now let's talk about that word anointed. You know what it means if you just think about it for a second. It, it obviously refers literally to the pouring of oil over someone's head. But what did that act mean? The act of pouring oil over one's head meant that you, they were being set aside to have authority over the people of God, right? Or over the kingdom of God in some way, shape, or form. Think about Saul and think about David and the other kings of Israel. How would they be made to be the king? Well, the final thing was that oil would be poured on their head as a symbol that they now have power over the people of Israel, over the people of God. And so here we read of an anointed cherub. And I can only think when I read that, that what this means is that this particular angel has been given authority over the other angels. And I don't know who else that would be but Satan, given the way that the rest of this passage goes. If the rest of this passage did not talk about the fall of this guardian cherub, then I would, I would still think it had to do with an angel, but I wouldn't know who. Was it Michael? Was it Gabriel? Was it some other archangel we've never heard of? I wouldn't know. But since this anointed guardian cherub fell from grace, I just don't know who else this could be. And I am deeply convinced that this is talking about Satan and giving, giving us insight into what happened in his life, so to speak. There are, are actually a couple of other reasons why I believe this, but I'm going to leave that for another time and hope that if you're not persuaded, that at least you understand why I am persuaded. And I'm going to proceed now as though this text refers to Satan. So if you don't agree with me, that's okay. But I'm going to proceed on that assumption. And on that assumption, I want you to notice in verse 12, look at those words, the Lord God. The Lord God. That's an important little phrase that has to do with the sermon I preached last week. That phrase, the Lord God in Hebrew, is an emphatic phrase that is always used in some way, shape, or form to assert the authority of God over what's being talked about. So in this context, I think the Lord is saying at the very beginning of this lamentation, that don't miss the point. No matter how powerful this guardian cherub is, I am the Lord. And I have power over him. 
He submits to me. I do not submit to Him. I and I alone am the Lord God. So as I said last week, above all things we'll learn in Ephesians 6, 10-20, we have to learn this. Behold the power of your God, because He has ultimate authority over all of your enemies. Second thing I want us to notice in the beginning of verse 12 is that word lamentation. This just occurred to me yesterday, yesterday afternoon as I was praying over this And it hit me with such force that I actually began to cry when I realized that the Lord told Ezekiel not to write a song of praise over Satan, but to rise, to to write a lamentation over him. Now, the way that struck me is that our Father does not gloat over Satan, He grieves over Satan. His heart is broken about what happened. Our Father is a victor. He is the victor above all victors, but He's not the kind who gloats. He's the kind who grieves. And so one thing that this tells me is that when we talk about Satan, when we talk about demons, when we pray for their demise, when we pray for their downfall, we have to be very careful about the tone with which we do that. Let us have the the air, the attitude of our Father and lament over Him that any of this happened at all. Let us be humble. Do you remember the book of Jude where we're told that Michael the archangel and Satan were disputing over the body of Moses? Now, I have no idea what that means. Jude doesn't tell us what it means. But what I do know is that you have a a powerful angel, Michael, which next week we'll see cast Satan out of heaven, and you have Satan disputing over Moses. And what does the Bible say? It says that even Michael, the one through whom God cast Satan out of heaven, would not level a slanderous accusation at the devil, but instead simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And so what I'm trying to say is, when we fight against the devil, we need to have an air of humility about us. We need to have the grieving heart of our Father about us, because here in Ezekiel, He has inspired a text that is a lamentation. Kim and I were talking about this last night. In the the metaphor that came to Kim's mind was of a family who had to send away a prodigal son and they knew it was permanent. This son had to be removed from the family forever. Never coming back. No hope of reconciliation. It's over. He's gone forever. And now when we talk about him, we don't gloat over him. We grieve. And I think that's how God feels toward Satan. So now, with that kind of attitude... With that kind of humility about us, let's think again about what happened to him. What happened to Satan? In verse 15, Ezekiel simply says, unrighteousness was found in him. He became greedy. He became violent. And he sinned in the very presence of God Almighty. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. This wasn't the case with Satan here. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was an anointed cherub in the presence of God and he sinned against God knowingly. His heart grew proud because of his own beauty, which I take to mean that he looked at himself and became impressed with himself over what God had given him rather than being impressed with the God who gave it to him. Somehow, he stopped worshiping the Creator and started worshiping the created thing, which was, in this case, himself. And he became utterly committed to his own splendor 
rather than to the splendor and the glory and the purposes of the One who created him. And in this way, he sinned greatly against God. He bent his praise inward. And in this way, sinned a very great sin. In this way, Ezekiel says later in the text that he profaned his sanctuary which can either mean that Satan profaned the sanctuary of God or Satan profaned the, the territory that God had given to him. One way or the other, this was a horrid, horrid sin. And not just one. And so, God Almighty, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the One of whom the angels always say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That God cast Satan out from his holy mountain. He removed him from the stones of fire. He destroyed him. He exposed him before kings. And he consumed him with fire so that he shall be no more forever. Now I take those last several pronouncements to be prophetic. I take those last several pronouncements to to mean that God made his mind up instantly about what should happen with Satan, but it, it has taken time to work the judgment of God out. And we know that to be true, right? Satan is not destroyed now. He's wreaking havoc in the world even now. We know this from experience. We know this from Scripture. He is not yet destroyed, but I think what Ezekiel is saying is, in the mind of God, it is finished. It is over. The judgment has been pronounced. The time is short, and soon enough, our enemy will be destroyed. In the meantime, Satan has been granted tremendous authority over the kingdoms of this world and over the affairs of human hearts. Listen to 1 John 5.19. This is really a stunning text. It says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now if you just stop and think for a little bit about what this world is like, that statement probably won't surprise you very much. But the thing that stuns me about it is the extent of his power. I mean, think about the power of the United States and the power of Russia and the power of China and the power of Iran and the power of Venezuela and the power of every country in the world. Combined, Satan rules them all, in a sense, in measure. That is a tremendous amount of power that he's been given. And not only that, but in 2 Timothy 2.26, the, the Lord tells us that he has taken captive the hearts of people who don't believe in Christ and, and He makes them to do His will. That's power, man. That is a lot of power that's been granted to Him by God. Now, of course, this does not mean that God has abdicated all power over the earth to Satan. It does not mean that. But it does mean that for reasons only known to God, I don't know of any scholar that understands this completely or thoroughly or well at all for reasons known only to God and maybe to angels God has allowed Satan to reign on the earth and to wreak havoc for a time but that's the key only for a time now I want you to see something here Satan knows that his time is short and Satan knows what is his destiny and one of the ways I know that he knows that is the, one of the texts we read last week. You remember last week when Jesus came upon the demon-possessed man and those demons cried out to Jesus and what did they say? They said, Who are you, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So that means that demons and Satan have the conscious knowledge that their time is short and that their end is torment. 
Now put these things together. He knows that He reigns on earth for now. He knows that the time is short. He knows that His end is hell. What does that calculate to mean? I think it calculates to mean that He is desperate and He is fierce. He might be fierce one way or the other, but because His time is so compacted, I think He's made even more fierce, which helps us understand words that are used about Him in the Bible like murderer, thief, Stealer, killer, destroyer, devourer. He's out to get you. He's not out to irritate you. He wants to destroy you. And the only thing that's holding him back from devouring every human being on the earth right now is the power of God and the will of God. The Father will not allow it to happen. And so he prowls around the earth looking for the ones that God has given him permission to devour. And he does. Christian, I beg of you not to underestimate your enemy. He is more powerful than you think. He is more fierce than you think. And though his destruction is sure, he's been granted authority for a time and he is out to destroy you because especially you bear the name of Jesus Christ. He cannot defeat Christ and he knows it, right? Just thinking about this this morning. When, when Jesus died on the cross, which we symbolized here, what do you think Satan was thinking? He probably thought, I won! But he lost. It was his very defeat, the thing that he thought was his victory. Now he knows he cannot defeat Christ, so he's out to devour you who bear the name of Jesus Christ. Now greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? Much greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So I am not saying that you should fear this enemy. The Bible never says to do that. It says fear God. And so do that. But I am pleading with you not to underestimate Satan. He is fierce and he has been given a measure of authority. I am urging you to diligently heed the words of Paul in Ephesians 6.10 and put on the whole armor of God. Be made strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Take up the weapons of the warfare that the Lord has given you and fight with those because without Him you have no hope against this fierce enemy of ours. No hope at all. But with Him... Our enemy has no hope. So be clothed in the Lord and be clothed in the power of His might. And one day, by His grace and for His glory, He will put your hands on the neck of your enemy. Now, just one more word. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, but you have maybe been gripped by the words that you've heard today, for some of you, either hearing here or some people listen to my sermons on the Internet, Maybe maybe you think this is all silliness, just Christian mythology, just a bunch of craziness that people have devised because they're bored. they got nothing else to do, so they need drama, so they thought up this good and evil thing, and it's just all a bunch of mythology. Well, if that's you, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I pray that you'd keep thinking about it. I pray that you wouldn't set these things aside. Or if nothing else, I pray that the Lord would just bug you and bug you and bug you until you look into these things. For years of my life, I denied these things and God would not let me go. And I pray that He won't let you go either. Others of you may be gripped with the reality of these things. I remember October 26, 1986, when the Lord opened up my eyes, I saw for the first time two things. The reality of the power of Jesus and the darkness and the power of hell. I saw it. Almost physically, I saw it. It was so clear to me. And Jesus Christ gave me a choice. 
He literally did. You may or may not believe that this is that this is true. When people stand up and say, the Lord said this to me, I'm always a little skeptical. I'm fine if you're skeptical. But I testify before the Lord that what He said to me was, Charlie, I'm done with you. It's your time to choose. I've set life before you and death before you. Choose. And I did. I sat there. I thought about it. I had pot in this pocket. I had speed in this pocket. I looked at the glory of Jesus. I, I could not resist Him. So I flushed my drugs down the toilet and I came to Christ. Blessed be His name. Amen. And I pray that if you're lost today, if you don't know Christ, if you're in the grip of the power of darkness, I pray that you'd simply believe in Jesus because that's the way to get out of the grip of Satan. As strong as he is, all it takes to peel back his fingers is belief in Jesus Christ. That's all. The Bible says in Romans 10.9, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and what that means is that He has power and authority over all spirits and over all things, and if you will believe in your heart that God raised Him again from death to display His power over death and over destruction and over heaven and over hell, if you will believe that in your heart, if you will turn from your sins and follow Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's that simple. You know, to go to India, Dave and Kevin had to jump through all kinds of hoops and go through all kinds of complications. But to get to heaven through Christ, all it takes is belief. It's all it takes. And so I urge you this morning to believe in Jesus Christ. Or at least don't stop thinking about Him. Don't walk out of here and forget this whole subject. Your life depends on this. If I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But if you're wrong, you're going to hell if you reject Jesus Christ. So please, don't take this lightly. And please, I pray, believe. Just believe in Him. I'll be praying for you in this way. Next week, I want to continue this conversation by talking about what happened when Satan was cast out of hell. And the only place I know in the Bible that probably talks about that is Revelation chapter 12. So in advance, if you guys want to look at that and think about Revelation 12 and meditate with me a little bit about what happened there, uh, that's going to open up the whole subject of demons and spiritual forces and help us to dig into Ephesians 6.12 a little bit more. So that will be next week. But for now, I just want to remind you once more, clothe yourselves in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Father, I pray once more as I prayed earlier that You would simply accomplish Your purposes through this sermon. I am all weakness, Father. I am stumbling and fumbling and and never quite know how to say what You put on my heart to say. But I don't care about that. I trust in Your strength and not my weakness. So please, take what I have offered and use it for the glory of Your name and the joy of our souls. And please, Lord, outfit us now for war. Our enemy's not taking the next couple of months off while we talk about this stuff. And so we need You now. Please clothe us and protect us for the glory of Your name and the good of our souls. In Jesus' great and mighty name I pray. Amen.